Imagine you are a young doctor just finishing training. You experience a cardiac arrest, and in the process, you break your neck, leaving you paralyzed. You spend the next two and a half years in hospital trying to just save your life. You become a full-time patient as a result of your injuries. This is the story of Dr. Lynn Ashdown. It's episode 12. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadjo Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Happy New Year, everybody. I want to thank you for being so responsive. Our last minicast, we talked about a call to action, getting people moving, changing the boogie, reaching out and, and spreading the word about what we're trying to do on the Quadcast. And, and it's been amazing. We got an influx of comments and uh, increase in five-star ratings. And and you know what? I really appreciate you guys doing your part. And uh Let's keep moving. Let's keep uh, spreading the word and uh, spreading what we're trying to achieve, solving healthcare. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. And I got to tell you, I love these guys. Okay, they provide professional counseling that is accessible, affordable, and convenient. Okay, you get to connect with these professionals via video chat, via phone call, by email, whatever is the most convenient way for you to receive professional counseling is how they'll provide it. And I got to tell you, I mean, I was speaking with Jeff over at uh, BetterHelp and they provide services for all, like whether it's your teenager that needs help, whether it's whether it's for yourself, whether it's for uh, marriage counseling. They even provide care for healthcare professionals, especially like we're seeing more compassion fatigue and they're specializing in that too. So honestly, like it's, it's such a great service. It's affordable. If you want to reach out to them, go to betterhelp.com and use the discount code solving healthcare and get 10% off your signup fees. And yeah, like I said, I love what they're doing out there. So you heard it in the intro. We are talking to Dr. Lynn Ashdown, and this is such an unfortunate story. As you heard, she had a cardiac arrest, which left her paralyzed and and having to be hospitalized for over two and a half years and having recurrent medical issues as a result of her injury. So after listening to her story, there's one thing that I really want you guys to take away from this, and that's the patient's experience, the patient's voice matters. And not only does it matter, it is so valuable to be able to provide better care. We will learn so much by having the patients have a voice at all levels, whether we're doing research, whether we're doing quality improvement studies, whether we're designing, developing a new treatment center. There's so much insight that the patients can be, can be providing. And you're going to hear that from Lynn. You're going to hear how the little things that might not be intuitive to the clinician can be so 
impactful in a negative or in a positive way. And as a clinician who got into this game to try and help people, hearing some of these stories really makes me feel like I wish I would have known more. I wish I would have been in, I wish I would have done better. So really think about that message after listening to the episode. What can we collectively do to make sure our patients have a voice at all levels? Okay, so without further ado, Dr. Lynn Ashdown. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am wonderful. I I was at the Ottawa Patient Safety Conference. I'm messing up the name, I'm sure. And you gave this testimony, you gave your, the, your story, and it blew me away. And I immediately grabbed someone I knew, uh, Melissa Brent, said, like, she needs to come on the show. She Thanks. needs to go yeah. represent, you know. And so I'm, I'm. It's an honor that you're actually that we were able to make this happen. And I appreciate you taking the time. Oh no, it's my my pleasure, and um, I'm glad that you took the opportunity to come and uh, chat with me after, and happy to share my message and story. And um, I think what you're doing with the podcast is fantastic. Oh, and uh, let's uh, let's see where this can go. Absolutely, it's it's going to be a good one. I feel it. Um, so I'm just going to jump into it. Tell us your story. Yeah, my story is pretty crazy. Everyone has kind of defining moments in their life. And there's there's specific times where people can really sort of say, my life, my life changed. Mm. But I, I really had a dramatic sort of change to my life. And, um, you know, a little over six years ago, November 27th, 2013, my life literally changed fundamentally every every part of it mm-hmm. and uh sort of the life that I was leading before that day and and the life that uh I'm I'm living now are two completely different um two completely different lives almost I kind of think of myself as the old Lynn and the new Lynn um but uh before um sort of that I call that day um sort of the the accident day but um before uh, 6 years ago I was uh University of Ottawa grad from medical school and I was um finishing it was at the very end of my family medicine residency had even written my final uh, licensing exam and uh I went to work that day as a full-time healthcare provider. And then my next memory is waking up in the ICU, not knowing how I had gotten there, not really being aware of anything that had happened and found myself uh, embarking on this journey, what would become literally a a full-time journey as a patient. And um, when I say I'm a patient experience expert, I I really, um, I've been living sort of the life of a full-time patient for the last six years now. Unbelievable. So what led, what happened that day? Yeah. The day, oh, the day we call the accident. Yeah. What happened so um, I, I kind of, sorry. And even j- just um, life before the accident too, like what, what were the stuff, what were the things that you were doing on a regular basis? What were your hobbies? What were, what were the joys of life there? Now? Well, I mean, I, I mentioned, I obviously, I loved medicine. I loved, mm. I mean, and, and I still really hadn't gotten into it. I was just finishing up residency, but very passionate about medicine, um, loved family medicine, loved every part of uh, medicine, actually always that 
thirst for um, knowledge and that intellectual curiosity, but I really loved the human connection part of mm. it. And being a physician, I, I truly feel is it's a privilege. I mean, you're part of patients' lives at their most vulnerable moments, mm. and and that's an honor. It really, truly is, and it's a privilege to be to be part of. Uh, you know, patients' lives in that way. And um, so obviously, I'm sure, as you know, it, you know, training in medicine takes up a lot of your time. But mm -hmm. uh, I was also, um, well, I was concurrently doing my master's in medical education mm -hmm. at the time as well. So um, have always been, and we'll sort of hear, I think, as we go on today, um, been interested in sort of the education part of medicine. Mm -hmm. So um, was doing that. But leading a very active life, um, loved exercise. I mean, mm -hmm. I've been doing sports since I was, you know, since I have memories Zero. and yeah, yeah <laughs> I think I, I came out running or something because, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so very physically active, um, kind of grew up doing every sport, um, did some sports at sort of a high level competition, um, had done, you know, a few marathons, wow. um, really any sport physical activity was, was game for me. Yeah. Um, just kind of living typical busy life mm -hmm. of, of a young woman, sort of just embarking on the career, but uh, traveling a ton, yeah. um, doing a lot of traveling, diehard sense fan. Like, <laughs> I've un seen that here, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you see well, Alfie all the and, uh, Alfie and Carlson. Carlson. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Love literally, um, uh, maybe I'm aging myself, but I, uh, that very first Ottawa Senators home game. I, I was a little child, but I was there for it. Nice. Like the very first, like way back when, I mean, the Sens, they weren't even at in Canada. They were out at what was in the Civic Center. But yeah, uh, yeah it, uh, so diehard Sens fan um, and living life. Life was good. Yeah. Yeah. And then... The accident. And then the accident. So, um, like I said, I my last memory is... Um, I was uh, going to work that morning and uh, I don't even remember actually going to work. Apparently I, I did go to work, um, but my last memory is actually being in the car um, about to go into clinic. And um, and then I guess what had happened was uh, I, I have, a, I've since learned that I have congenital long QT syndrome, which is an electrical abnormality of the heart, um, mm. undiagnosed at the time, but um, it, typically about 50% of the time, first presentation is cardiac arrest. And so I was, I guess, sitting in a coffee shop. I was studying as like I, I always do. Um, loved doing all my studying at coffee shops. And uh, I guess I was sitting on a stool. What witnesses reported was that I was sitting on a stool. And um, because of this congenital long QT syndrome that I didn't know I had at the time, I went into cardiac arrest. And um, so I, my heart stopped. And so when I say my life changed in a heartbeat that day, it literally yeah. and figuratively did change in, in an instant and in a heartbeat. And um, so I guess going into cardiac arrest, I fell lifeless from the stool. And um, the, the way that I fell, I uh, shattered my skull sort of had a frontal skull and right orbital fossa fracture, um, suffered um, a moderate traumatic brain injury, um, broke my neck at, at C3, suffered a spinal cord injury. Um, and uh, that just basically started a cascade of uh, life as a full-time patient and all the, the medical issues that you can imagine would, would ensue from that. Um, I, I spent almost two and a half years cumulatively as 
as an inpatient, not not to mention even like not just out, a patient, just, just literally. literally in a hospital oh. um, for almost two and a half years combined. So you can imagine life now is is very different. Um, I'm not practicing um, clinically, but uh, um, really the first few years, like I said, two and a half years was spent being an inpatient, and then um, I'm for uh, I'm in a wheelchair, so trying to adapt to new life from a wheelchair, completely different. I mean, it's the the learning curve is. I mean, I would say adapting to. To life after these injuries was way harder than medical school ever was. But then also trying to figure out um, my brain does not work the same. And I mean, when I first woke up, I couldn't put two words together. Wow. And uh, I mean, if you had asked me a few years ago, if I'd be doing a podcast, I, I definitely, uh, I would have said the answer is no, really? um, let alone talking at conferences and and sharing my story. Um, I mean, I, I've had to relearn everything. So I continue to to do that to this day. Um, sort of, I consider my recovery as my full-time job right now, mm-hmm. and I continue to improve. I've sort of reached a point where my health was stable enough that I was able to kind of use my experiences and sort of the unique insight that I gained from being a patient um, to be able to to start incorporating sort of, I have a very unique view of the healthcare system because I went into it with an understanding of the healthcare system, but then combine that with literally being a patient experience expert. um, It it really has given me a very unique insight into the system and um, a gift in in a way that I think most people wouldn't have. And and, uh, I think it's my way of being able to, to still improve patient care, be part of, I mean, I went into medicine because I want to help people. Right. And even if I can't do that clinically, that that desire, that drive to help patients and, and help the healthcare system in general, it's still there. So yeah. I'm just kind of doing it a little bit differently now. Um, I have since gone back to, to finish my master's in medical education. Awesome. So I'm doing that part-time all by distance education. But uh, I've also just in the last year and a half started to do um, some work at the Ottawa Hospital with um, their patient engagement program there. So being a patient advisor and uh, a, a sort of a, a program lead in, mm-hmm. in that, um, doing getting involved in a few sort of research projects, but also um, really starting to share the wisdom that I learned from being a patient. Wow, Lynn. Like, I mean, there's there's so much there. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> I, I might be even um, speechless here. First of all, I, I, I want to say it's great to see how much you've you've recovered from your initial injury. Like hearing that, you know, two plus years ago, you don't picture yourself being able to have this conversation now, and seeing you how bright you are and 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 uh, you you look actually physically fit too. Yeah, it's it's awesome to see. Thank you. I've worked really hard for it. I mean, yeah. it didn't just sort of happen passively. Um, I, I've worked really hard to get to to where I am, but mm-hmm. um, it, I, I'm just fundamentally, I don't think I'm designed to kind of just be passive. Right. It, it's just not who, it's who not, I am. And that's sort of, yeah. It, it's, yeah. Yeah. No, it's that, in me to always be improving to no matter push. what your circumstances are. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you certainly, 
have improved on your circumstances. I just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing or summarizing a bit here, but just imagine people, you are young, vibrant, young woman, ready to, you know, put your footprint on the medical world and help others. And out of the blue, your world completely changes on it with a medical condition that you don't know you have. You suffer this crazy injury. Like, and I got to tell you, it's not common. Like for those that aren't medical, it's not common to break your, you were in a, on a stool. Sitting on a stool. Yeah. It's, this is very rare. Like we even people from a standing position would rarely break their neck and then end up with a spinal injury. I kind of joke that uh, you you couldn't even script it for like a Hollywood movie if if you wanted to. No. Like it it, it would be like, "Mm, it's a bit too much. Yeah, exactly. And and so you have this crazy, unfortunate circumstance. And here you are today with all your endeavors with the hospital to research through being here now to try and make make a difference in, in terms of the patient experience. And we're, we're going to talk about each one of these things. I want to get a sense from you, though, what it, was it like being an ICU patient? And I'm coming a little bit of bias because I'm, you know, I obviously I work in the ICU and we often get these stories about how, how tough it could be going through the intensive care unit. Yeah. You know, it's not a benign treatment. And I'm wondering, do you have some recollection of that time of your your, your treatment? I have very few memories from being in the ICU, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, maybe from your yeah. experience, maybe a good no, thing. I, I um, it's, it's kind of protective. Of ways, it's a good thing and protective. Exactly. Yeah. So um, because of the brain injury, I really don't have a lot of that from being in the ICU. Um, pretty much just one or two kind of memories. Um one was actually, it was really my first memory of being awake. And um, I obviously, like I said, I was very confused. And the interesting thing was, I actually recognized the environment that I was in. Mm-hmm. And I, I remembered sort of a, you know, as as you know, um, from being in the ICU kind of rounding on patients and mm-hmm. stuff. And, and I remember seeing sort of a, a group of people, you know, the the staff and nurses and residents and, and stuff, but actually thinking that I was part of rounds. Wow. I, I didn't comprehend that I was the patient. I remember hearing them talking about a patient, but I actually thought I was part of rounds mm-hmm. and that I, I didn't comprehend that I was the patient, that mm-hmm. they were talking about me. Um, So I, I do have, it's a very disconnected, almost like a dissociated memory, mm-hmm. sort of hearing C3 fracture and brain and all this stuff and, you know, surgeries that were coming up and sort of, uh, you know, just kind of hearing all the diagnoses, but actually not knowing that it was me. Mm-hmm. So my brain had started to kind of almost say, man, that person's got a long road ahead of them. <laughs> like, like it, I, I understood the severity of it from a medical person, but I didn't know it was me. I didn't know it was you. Yeah. That must have been in, like so It's very odd. surreal. Yeah. Like it, it still feels like I was very detached from that, mm-hmm. which um, I mean, it, I, I likely was, um, whether that was protective or because of the brain injury or a combo of both. But mm-hmm. um, it, it's a very... It was a very bizarre feeling. Mm. Um, and, and I would say it wasn't until I was I had transferred out of the ICU and probably even at the in in rehab that I really started to 
I would say, have memories of truly understanding what was the journey that I was about to embark on as right. a patient. You kind of alluded to this before, but because you know you you mentioned how you aren't someone that stays stagnant that wants to grow and make the best out of you know the circumstances you're in after being in rehab or like coming to and realizing the road ahead was this did this come naturally at that point even that early on or is this like something that really needed to develop over the course of your treatment so it's a a really good question and it you know i'm fairly comfortable. I'm quite comfortable actually sharing my story now. I I do believe there's power in patient stories. And I mean, stories are what connect everybody. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I really, like you said, it's such a bizarre story that there's, it's a story that I want to share and that I want people to, to learn from. And, uh, but I'm also a very honest person and it's it's been a struggle. I mean, I'm talking about it quite comfortably now, but um, no, it didn't come naturally, actually. And and I was very resilient, hardworking, um, sort of quite positive person. And mm-hmm. and I would say the first year, I was literally just kind of fighting for my life. Mm-hmm. So there was no. And, and again, with the brain injury, there was no cognitive processing at all. Like I was just sort of the memories that I have. I was just a patient and you know, the system was kind of doing care to me. I wasn't really part of the care and I wasn't quite able to be part of that sort of process at that point. So kind of the first year, it was really just kind of surviving physically, get through it. it. And year two was when I think the brain injury started to settle a little bit and I could kind of process sort of what had happened. And, um, you know, I'm quite sort of, open and and saying that, I mean, I've got a lot of medical issues that have ensued from sort of the severity of those injuries, but really suffered from depression, post-traumatic stress disorder from sort of the accident in itself. So it, uh, it, it's, it's been, it, it didn't quite come naturally. I think the resilience and the hard work in me and sort of the, just the drive to know that there has to be something better in the end that was there. But was I happy doing it? Was I sort of always okay with it? No. And and I would say I really, you know, it's it's been a grieving process. Like mm. I've really had to grieve the life that I lost and accept the life that I have now. And it's been a journey. In terms in terms of that grieving process, you know, I can say this as a doc. We tend to put our emotions aside, you know, especially when we see a lot of, you know, ill patients, sick patients, sad circumstances. So we tend to compartmentalize and, and maybe stuff some of these emotions somewhere deep, you know, did you find out that was a challenge to, to, to be able to address these things? Cause, and the reason I say that is mostly because of, you know, we're seeing a lot of more and more mental illness within within our colleagues. You know, yes. just at, at the time of we're doing this podcast, uh, Ryan Sagan, he's, you know, he's a 24-year-old medical student, passed away um, by, by, you know, he committed suicide. And, you know, it's just, you know, I think we, we need to... We need be, to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, we need to talk about mental illness in general and more in society, but also within healthcare and within physicians. Um, mm. So it it needs to be sort of destigmatized and, and addressed. Absolutely. And that's sort of why I'm quite open about every diagnosis that, mm-hmm. that I've suffered and sort of every illness. Because I, I mean, 
suffering from mental illness, it's not any different than me breaking my neck or mm. or anything like that, um, or any of the other sort of, you know, long-term sort of other medical diagnoses that I've had. It's, I mean, really, I think to destigmatize mental illness, we almost need to stop calling it mental illness. Everything's mm. just illness. It's just illness. Right? Yeah, as really long good. as we keep sort of separating things into sort of physical health and mental health, we're kind of keeping it separate. Mm-hmm. But and And I mean, I've said this before, I truly believe if you're going to get better, all of your health needs to be addressed. You know, the mental, physical, all of it. And so, you know, I, I, I really think the importance of addressing that is is paramount. Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, I, I did a really good job initially, or I did or I didn't, of not sort of dealing with the emotions. And I think, again, our, our bodies are really resilient. I mean, I already sort of knew that. And maybe this is just the 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 geek in me, the the medical sort of, you know, the, the intellectual sort of curious person in me. But uh, I mean, our human body, they're fascinating. Mm. It's, it's, it's just, it's phenomenal. And so I think in, in a way, without realizing, I really did need to put my emotions aside to mm. kind of survive that first year. Right. But then once sort of everything had kind of settled and I was sort of through the worst part from a physical perspective, that's when sort of everything else kind of hit me. And mm. it wasn't really by choice that I wanted to address everything, but I was literally, you know, paralyzed mm. by just as much by my physical health issues than all of a sudden the mental health issues sort of paralyzed me. And I really do look at my recovery as you've got sort of your physical health, you've got your sort of emotional mental health. I think of my cognitive recovery, it, it's, and without sort of addressing each one of those things and the overlap between them, I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. Like we wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do this podcast if I hadn't have addressed every part of my health. The um, holistic exactly. approach. Wow, no, that's that's really good, Lynn. Uh, to to illustrate the value of of dealing with all those aspects of of your health and well being. So, what can, what can we learn from your unfortunate circumstances, like the, going through this? What can we learn? Either and it's wide open from a societal level, from a patient level, from a clinician level. Going through th- this experience, what can we learn from? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like you said, it's kind of wide open and probably depending on the day that you ask me, I might have a different answer Mm -hmm. because I still don't even think I've realized everything that I've learned. And it's probably going to be a journey that I continue to unpack for years to come. And uh, I would say one of the most shocking things that I experienced, I mean, when you're an inpatient in the hospital for almost two and a half years, you have some time to think. And uh, I I don't know how how you would feel, but if you had asked me before this accident happened, would I have been prepared to navigate the system as a patient? My answer would have been yes, Mm -hmm. just because of having worked in the system and understanding sort of the the medical side of things, but also just understanding the system. I, I probably would have said quite confidently, yeah, I think I really would have been prepared. And man, was I shocked when all of a sudden I found myself as a patient really unable to navigate the system. Wow. And it, to, to think that I knew so much, yet I knew so little 
as a patient. Hmm. It's it's a lot to unpack. And I kept thinking to myself, man, how how are other people doing it? Because I mean, as much as I say that I found it difficult to navigate, I still ultimately understood the system. I I still I had a head start on mm. probably most patients. And Absolutely. so I can't even imagine what it would be like for someone who hasn't worked in healthcare, who hasn't trained in, in healthcare, sort of all of a sudden being thrown into this chaotic system. Can you can you give like an example of a, a situation where you're it was tough to navigate? Yeah. I, I'm sure you sort of hear about this from from your work in the ICU, but you often hear of discharges yeah. being a really difficult transition. Mm-hmm. And being in medical school and um, and in residency, as physicians, you kind of, well, I mean, every healthcare professional, everybody works in silos and mm-hmm. they have their area of expertise. And so I can remember coming on call and being on internal medicine and sort of being responsible for discharging a patient. And once you check the boxes in terms of, okay, their medical issues have have sort of stabilized and they're safe to be discharged from a medical perspective, you just sort of sign off and you assume that this patient goes into this world where sort of their home care services all fall into place. They have follow-up with a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. They have access to their medical charts. At least I was quite naive in my understanding of how the whole healthcare system kind of came together. Mm -hmm. I understood things from the physician perspective. And Mm -hmm. when the patient was ready to go from a medical perspective, we signed off and, and that was that. And you just sort of assume that everything else kind of happens, right? but it doesn't. And I mean, I can tell you from the number of times that I've had discharges and had to set up, you know, you know, I mean, I have home care every day. So just trying to coordinate that and sort of the breakdowns in communication mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, even having, you know, being bounced back because sort of discharge wasn't sort of handled appropriately. And then so sort of, back yeah, coming back because... to within 24 hours because sort of the services that I needed at home, it, it didn't come together. Oh, and so, I mean, I, I, I live alone, so, and, and I have wonderful help from people, but ultimately when I get discharged, when I leave a hospital, my situation is such that, that I don't have someone that can sort of step in and be like a a pseudo caregiver until all the services come into place. Mm. So if things aren't coordinated, I'm here by myself in my apartment. If that PSW doesn't show up or that equipment that I need from a supply perspective doesn't come as scheduled, then I have no choice but to go back to to the hospital. Wow. Because there isn't somebody that can just hop in a car and go and pick it up or, you know, help me transfer or something like that until the people that I need come. And so when I talk about how difficult it is to navigate the system, there's a whole system. I, I would say I, as a physician, we experience like 5% of the system. Wow. But then it blew my mind how much I didn't know. And I got to tell you, this is something I'm, by doing the show, I'm learning on a regular basis how little we know about the patient experience in general. But like, like, you know, these systems, like to think, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote that discharge, says the home care is going to be there or whatever. Fine. You're done. I'm done. Yeah. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And it it makes me think about actually Gianni DiGidio. I hate 
bringing your name up again, buddy. Anyway, he, he, he's a colleague of mine that gives his cell phone out to his patients. And this is exactly why he, he does this, to be able to make sure that the steps are in place, that not only you are cleared medically, but you're cleared to go home safely. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I could speak for Gianni. You know, he also had like, you know, in terms of family members needing higher levels of care and, and really being able to see that side. And I, I think that's opened up things for for him. And, and uh, you know, hearing that now, I, I hope there's a cl- our clini- clinical colleagues out there could truly appreciate, you know, you know, really making sure our ducks are in a row because there's a lot of pressure to get patients home. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, you know, one, I'll give an example at one of the hospitals I'm working at, there's X amount of, 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 in, in, of uh, admitted patients in, in, in the emergency department. There's tons of paramedics that are waiting to dip, unload patients into the eMERGE and it's just the, the hospital's backloaded. So you're, you're just doing your best to discharge, but you really need to make sure these ducks are in a row. Cause I'm just thinking you lit, you Lynn, like having to come back, like how, how dejecting would that be? You know what I'm saying? You And emerge again and ugh. You know, and I felt like a failure. Mm-hmm. And and I and it really it wasn't my it, it was a system failure rather than sort of a, a personal failure. But I mean, I think I'm still I, I have certain expectations of, of myself and you know, I think like a lot of colleagues in medicine, we tend to we're harder on ourselves than we would be on other people. Mm. I think that something is that in in a lot of either healthcare workers, but physicians definitely. But so at least I can say that I held and I still have higher expectations for myself. I would say I'm tougher. I'm my toughest critic. Right. And, but uh, you know, it, it does. I mean, and nobody wants to be in a hospital, right? And so, I mean, there there are very few people that, if any, that truly really, you know, want to be in the hospital, right? Yeah. And and so, A, just the idea of having to go back there, but then also kind of taking it a little bit like it, it was a personal failure, like mm-hmm. I just couldn't manage at home. And, and, and yeah, yeah. It, it, it's hard. And not to mention, I mean, you're still not feeling good. Health wise, right? Like this, it, that's exactly we're, what I was we're about not to at say. our best. We're yeah. at our worst when like, we're in the hospital. And I mean, I'm just thinking of your story because you're in front of me. You go through all this shit, okay? You work your tail off to get yourself strong enough, get yourself out out of hospital, get you know, get yourself mentally strong to you know change that environment and 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 work on that rehab, and then boom, the shit you've been asking for to be able to get home and to be get home safely is not there. I mean. This is, I mean, this is the exact reason why this show exists, man. Yeah. Like, people don't know this shit. Yeah. People don't know these stories, these little things that if you think about, I don't, I mean, I shouldn't say because I'm not in their world, but I don't think it's that that hard to, to get right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more effort. But if you think of being patient-centered or whatever the term we're going to use, like, this is what we need to do. And therein lies, I think, one of the biggest, not in injustices, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that we're making in, in healthcare is that we don't understand the knowledge and the expertise that patients can bring. Yes. And it's an underutilized resource. I mean, patients are all around us. They're right there. Mm-hmm. And 
they have a certain, I mean, there's textbook knowledge and there's things that, I mean, we learn about all our medical sort of conditions and ailments and illnesses by studying textbooks or, you know, using up to date or, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, and, and that's great, but then there's a certain amount of expertise that comes from just living it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can even speak to before you had kids and after you have kids, right? <laughs> and sort of, there's a certain amount of oh, it, stuff God. that you just learn from doing it, yeah. being in the thick of it, right? Yeah. And sort of probably by your third kid, you're much more sort of casual and you understand the whole process way yeah. better than Where's when Zeke you first right bring- We don't even know where the third kid is. Exactly, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you bring your first child home from the hospital and even with your understanding as a physician, you're still sort of like, what am I supposed to do with this? We're the worst. <laughs> yeah, and and so, it, but it's the same thing. And if we can change the culture of the healthcare system, I mean, I think we're- changing it a bit in terms of a point of care perspective and including patients in the, their discussions in terms of their own management of their ailment. But mm-hmm. if we can change the culture of healthcare and the system design to appreciate and value the expertise that patients can bring mm-hmm. from being in the, they're the ones in the trenches. And the unique thing about patients is that they're the one unifying thread in healthcare. Everybody works in silos. Mm -hmm. Nurses understand their nursing world. Physios understand the physio world. Administrators understand the administrative perspective. And But what I realized from being a full-time patient is that I've understood each one of those silos in a whole different way because... I'm there all the time. So I see what's happening with the nurses. I see what's happening from an administrative perspective. I see what's happening during rounds and with physicians. And I see what's happening in as an inpatient. I see what's happening as an outpatient. I see what's happening with home care because I'm living it every day. And that's brought a whole other level of expertise that really was missing in my medical education. And that's not because I had a bad education. I had a great medical education and really sort of, I think, did my best to become the best possible physician that I could be. But mm-hmm. it's just valuing the culture of healthcare and valuing the patient voice. But also then you need, it's not that I, I sort of, if if any, I, I would say I was quite, I thought that I was a very patient-centered physician the way that I practiced. Mm-hmm. But I really came to learn from being a patient that my definition of what I had been taught was patient-centered in medical school and residency actually isn't patient-centered at all. And it, it took me being a patient to to realize that. Yes. I think for, for the listeners, I want to try and think of like concrete examples of, of being how the, the patient experience might not be obvious to the clinician and how that input from that patient, from the patient could really be eye-opening and impact care in a, in a, in a greater way, whether that's yep. something you've experienced or, or learned so, along the way. I mean, in terms of when I say sort of a patient-centered system versus, uh, I mean, I'll try to, hopefully we can elaborate on what I mean by patient-partnered, but right now I'm going to talk about sort of patient-centered versus a system-centered mm-hmm. sort of healthcare system. And really patients are living in a system 
patients are experiencing a system-centered healthcare. And what I mean by that is, for example, physicians and even we're going into the holidays now and, you know, things go down to skeleton staff. But really, healthcare doesn't stop because it's Christmas or because it's a long weekend or medical issues, they rarely happen from Monday to Friday between nine and five, right? right? And, but our system is kind of designed that all these services are in place and all the coordinators, the people that need to be there to make sure that discharges happen as, as planned. But if it doesn't happen between that Monday to Friday, sort of nine to five, then the same attention isn't isn't paid to it and but really if we're making like i said healthcare doesn't stop because it's an evening or a weekend or a holiday people are sick when they're sick and that's Mm -hmm. that so if we're really going to you know redesign or rethink the system i mean it really needs to be a 24 7 365 Mm -hmm. it doesn't hospitals don't close on, you know, on weekends, mm-hmm. or if we're going to be discharging people on a Saturday at at noon, because we're short beds, well, then the care coordinators that are responsible for that need to be working mm-hmm. on a Saturday at noon. Otherwise, things are just going to fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so another example, sort of a concrete example that I could say in terms of being system centered. And, and again, this is, a, it, it's not a a critique. It's just sort of the realities of the system. For example, I can remember sort of, uh, you know, being post-op and having the surgical team coming around on you sort of before they go into surgery for the day. So, I mean, your your team is coming to see you at 6.37 in the morning, and that's your time in the day to ask them your questions. Mm-hmm. But I mean, between me and you, if you asked me an optimal time to see my doctors and get the answers about what's happening, I wouldn't say that 6.30 in the morning when I've been woken up from the sleep and family, friends aren't there to, especially when you're suffering from a brain injury, that you might need other people to sort of absorb some of the information Mm -hmm. for you. That definitely isn't the best time of day that, that I would choose to ask my questions and get the answers that I need. But that's sort of the way that the system is built, Mm -hmm. but it definitely wasn't optimal from a patient-centered perspective. Mm -hmm. I I didn't get sort of, I I found myself actually knowing that teams were going to round on me early in the morning. So I would write down my questions the night before I went to bed so that when I was woken up and there's that group of people, and this is your chance to ask the question, I'd pull out my list. And, but I mean, most people, the moment they wake up, they're not ready to go, right? And mm-hmm. ask some pretty serious questions when you're in the hospital. I mean, sometimes these are life or death questions that you're asking. And, uh, you know, doing that at, at seven in the morning when you don't have that same support, that's an example where that's not necessarily patient-centered. That's a system-centered mm-hmm. sort of... What makes the team functional, but is not optimal for, for the patient. For the patient. And, and I, I don't know how we get... I mean, I, I think... There needs to be a complete redesign of the system. And I mean, I can't even begin to think about what that would entail. And like I said, it's it's not a critique of, for example, the time that the team came to see you. But in terms of, is that really what's best for the patient? Right. Yeah, and honestly, I think one of the main things to coming up with to come up with solutions is knowing what the problem is. Because, you know, I'm hearing this. And I, I know I'm not a surgeon, but I know what surgical life is like. And they they, they got to hustle, obviously. Exactly. Got to go to the OR. But you know, if they had 
whether it's a, a nurse practitioner or a, a hospital physician assistant, physician or, assistant or, on yeah. service that would be able to address some of these needs, answer some of the questions that might come up, and at least you know maybe they're not answering everything, but at least some of the big picture items they'll be yeah. able to address. You know that's a fix yeah. potentially, but the the key thing though was that having some having the issue come to uh, like be acknowledged. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So no, that's it's so true what you're saying. And you brought up the term patient partner. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on that. Yeah. So we hear the term a lot, patient centered, and and. Uh, like I said, before I became a patient, I really thought that I was practicing that sort of, and that means including the patient in the discussions, them being part of their sort of their treatment and, and that sort of thing. And I I do think that that was a strength of mine and sort of in sort of not that sort of old school paternalistic medicine, but we, we've kind of shifted away from that where kind of what the doctor says goes and that's that. And we've moved into definitely like a multifaceted and a multidimensional healthcare system where, I mean, we've got all the different healthcare professionals that are all working to make the patient better and which, which is fantastic. And, but what I discovered when I became a patient was you can be at the center of everything and still not be included. So care was done to me, not with me. So there was a team of people that wholeheartedly I know had my best intentions. Every doctor that, you know, that was on my team, every nurse that was part of my care, every physio, et cetera, everybody was working to try to optimize everything for me from a a healthcare perspective and from a, a medical perspective. But I often, or most of the time, still wasn't actually part of the discussions. It's like that team of people would get together and they'd all kind of say, this is what's best and this is what's going to happen and that sort of thing. Wonderful intentions and wholeheartedly, like I said, we all have the same goal of wanting the best outcome for the patients, but then sort of still not being included in the discussion. It was sort of like, okay, we've we're going to send you here and we think that this treatment's good and we'll start you on this medication. And it was kind of the team of experts came in, kind of said what needed to happen and then was gone. So what I discovered was that I was still at the center of the care, but care was done to me, not with me Mm. necessarily. And so in terms of the term patient partnering, I mean, from a point of care perspective, absolutely. So that's sort of inviting the patient and including them in their treatment decisions, but beyond patient partnering, that's a cultural shift that sort of recognizes that what the patient has to bring. I mean, ultimately patients are the ultimate stakeholder in healthcare. Without patients, there would be no healthcare, right? right? And so sort of valuing them as an equal stakeholder in their care, but beyond sort of personal care decisions, it's partnering with patients at a system and an organizational level and Mm -hmm. sort of valuing what they can bring from that perspective. And then beyond that, you've got it from a a research or a, you know, a government and sort of a a policy perspective, including patients in that level of, of healthcare as well. So it really sort of in terms of patient partnering, it's literally what that means is partnering and working with the patients at all levels at of healthcare. Levels. Yeah. I, I we we recently 
from a research point of view, we we had this uh, paper on in hospital cardiac arrest, and the editors at BMJ wanted us to get you know the patients partners actually to get their opinion on on what we discovered and basically the gist of the paper is you know your, your chances of recovery post like in hospital cardiac arrest are low but hearing what they had to say in terms of like man i wish i like i had no idea like basically their input was super insightful and quite often in research at least you know talking for research for now you know, sometimes they'll, you know, learn about what outcomes we're trying to measure and, and they'd be like, you know, like, it doesn't, doesn't matter, matter to the to patient. It- I don't really care about my hemoglobin A1C or my being X value. Like, I, I want to know, can I go home? Can I be functional? Can I be with my family? Can I communicate? Like all the kind of like things that are important yeah. to them. And without that voice, sometimes all this kind of stuff you realize doesn't matter for nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And And that might be different. And so that's where that sort of what matters most to patients, Mm -hmm. asking them what's important to them. But also that's going to be different for every patient. Mm -hmm. And sort of another example that I can think of was that I think it's quite common when you initially sort of have suffered the injuries that I have to go initially to an electric wheelchair because it can get you sort of out and moving. You can go further, faster. But I didn't want that. I was sort of a young woman and I was always very active. And and I, my mentality from the beginning was I didn't want the easiest route. I didn't want the path of least resistance. I wanted to take the path that was going to get me the furthest in the end, which might mean it's more difficult initially. So, you know, at one point it was sort of assumed that I was just going to start using an electric wheelchair, but I didn't want to use, I wanted to use a manual right from the beginning um, Mm -hmm. because I felt that that was important. A, that's where I wanted to be in the end, but in terms of my recovery, but that also meant that, you know, whereas if you have an electric wheelchair, you might be able to get out of your room, go down the hall, go grab a coffee and come back. But if you know, you've been in a hospital for months and you're using a manual wheelchair, that's a victory for me just to get to the door. Mm -hmm. But that was more important to me than to be able to get into an elect transfer into an electric wheelchair and be able to make it, you know, to the Tim Hortons down, down below to, to get a coffee. And, and because of my brain injury, I had a hard time expressing that initially. Mm -hmm. So what maybe looked like either being difficult or non-compliant or something like that was actually me just trying to say what maybe most patients want initially isn't what I wanted at that, you know, at that, at that moment. So it, and it took one nurse who really knew me quite well, who kind of just took the time and said like, what's up? Like, why don't you want to sit in this? And it, and I don't even think I quite realized like what was happening either. But then when we spoke about it, it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Right. And then once we were all on the same page, we we all knew that that was what I wanted and and it wasn't a compliance issue. It wasn't, you know, being difficult or anything like that. It was just that maybe what I wanted was different than what other patients wanted, right? And so, you know, what matters most to patients might be different for each patient, but that's where we have to sort of talk to the patients. Yeah, or even what I think what you would want isn't is what not want. what you would want. You know what I'm saying? So to to be able to get that, to come to that realization, we need to have that conversation. Yeah. We need to partner with our patients. Exactly. And a shameless plug, but maybe like a year and a half ago, I had, when I first started 
kind of processing everything that had happened, I wrote like a little, like an op-ed for like an article for the Journal of Patient Experience. And it was, I had basically written a tool with the acronym PATIENT Mm -hmm. that actually could help healthcare professionals in terms of partnering with patients in, in their in their care. So in terms of management decisions, and so it's an acronym that literally spells patient mm-hmm. in terms of, well, if you're a healthcare professional, how do you partner with patients in their healthcare decisions? But when I talk about that term patient partnering versus patient-centered, when I initially wrote that article, I in the title, it actually is a tool for patient-centered care. And if I had to redo it now, I would actually say a tool for patient-partnered care. care, So sort of the way that I even think about it has evolved in the last kind of year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's... uh, Well, it's incredible. I'll make sure to uh, put the uh, paper in in the show notes for real. Maybe, Lynn, can you talk to us about some of the... your work now in terms of being you know, that patient advocate and that patient-centered, patient-partnered care? Like, what's some of the stuff that you're doing now to to really establish that? Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, I've recently, um, I have my certificate and diploma in medical education, but um, when my accident happened, I was finishing my master's, and so I've gone back, and it's all by distance education. So I'm finishing my master's, and I'm actually doing autoethnography of my experience as a patient. So I don't know if you're familiar with what no, that is, with- but it, so an, ethog- an ethnography is basically just, it's qualitative research. So, but uh, it's taking one specific example, but then applying it to a larger sort of cultural context. So, but then an autoethnography is basically the person writing it is analyzing themselves. So essentially I'm studying my experience as a patient I'm my sample subject, and then I'm taking what I've learned as a patient and trying to incorporate that into medical education. Mm. So it's it's quite it's a very um, reflective process, but but it also really aligns with what I was passionate about before my accident, which was still you know medical education, and I think that teaching medical students right from the beginning, I mean. Mm really in terms of valuing the patient voice. And that is going to be a bit of a cultural shift. And so the sooner we can introduce it in medical school, the better. And and so that's where I'd love to see the patient experience and an actual curriculum, Mm -hmm. maybe designed by patients for, you know, that looks at their experiences and where they actually teach the medical students, because mm-hmm. um, they have a skill set that physicians don't have or any anybody else, right? So how do we utilize what patients have optimally, train them to actually be educators? And so that's one of the things that I, I hope to co- sort of, you know, incorporate into, into my master's. But we're doing that right now with a project at the Ottawa Hospital, like a storytelling workshop. And basically, you know, like I've said before, there's power in patient stories. Mm-hmm. And the capacity for stories to teach people is exponential in, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And But how do you teach someone to share their experiences in a way where the people hearing it are going to receive it? 
properly. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, talking about a medical error that happens, you know, for example, that that conference that we were at, that mm-hmm. can be a really difficult thing. And to not be angry about it or to not be, you know, to not point fingers at somebody. Mm-hmm. So how do you teach someone to see what happened and how that can be used as a learning tool to make sure that potentially that doesn't happen again, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't put the other side sort of on the defense right away, right? right? So yeah. it, it it's how do we bring sort of both sides together in the middle? Because ultimately, I think patients and everybody in healthcare, we all want what's best for the patient. Right. And and so this uh, this workshop is kind of looking at how do we teach patients who have who have these powerful stories to be able to curate their stories in a way that they can be used as an educational tool. I, I love it. Because you know what people remember are stories. Yep. That That's what, what's going to put an imprint on their on their mind grapes. That's what's going to put an input on their mind. It's going to be something that will, will stick. And so I think that approach is brilliant. I also think it's a, a brilliant that you're approaching it to medical students that still will be impressionable you know, that it will still have that desire to, to do whatever it takes to be, to, to be there for their patients and um, not like stubborn old men like myself. But <laughs> it, no, I really think that is the ticket because, um, you know, I, I think it's the timing is right also, you know, hearing, hearing more of these stories on how we, how, I don't want to say, maybe it's too harsh, but uh, f- failing our, our patients yeah. You know, and you hear these stories, like I, I, I said the story once before, you know, in terms of patient experience, but, um, you know, we, I recently heard a story about a family that agreed to donate uh, their um, their loved one's organs after they were diagnosed with uh, a, like brain dead. And, you know, they said no to the liver for whatever reason, and they were devastated and you know, as a as a doc that just deals with the acute on the acute side, I had no idea like the how much of an impact that could have on a family, and you know, knowing that you, you you'd want to be better at addressing it, you know, yeah. and just like for myself now after hearing that story, I I'm more upfront at at saying like you know the plan could be for X Y Z, but things can change depending yeah. on what they see, and I, I really want you to. Be prepared for that, you know, and because it's as you said, we got into this because we want we want to help people. We want to make them better. We want to, you know, you know, reduce their pain, reduce their suffering. And but hearing these stories are are really, I think, the key to navigating through this. Well, in the same way, I mean, at least I know that when I was, you know, studying in medical school and stuff, it's one thing to learn about the disease, but you always remember that first patient that yeah. you saw that had that disease. Yeah. So it's the same idea, right? It everything kind of comes together when you can when there's a story to go with the knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, good teachers always say when they're at least some of the good teachers I've had when when you're presenting a story or presenting a case, it's like Tell me a story, like yeah, you know what? What was this guy like? What was this patient doing before coming coming into hospital? What was he? What does he do as a profession? Like just adding these elements of personalizing the patient, yeah, and 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 you know, and that way for the kids out there, like they it makes it way more memorable. 
from having lived in a hospital for two and a half years, I can say that, I mean, you really, it can be really depressing at times. I mean, you're stuck inside these, there's a whole world happening outside of the hospital that you're not part of. And it's, it's hard not to feel like your ailment or to feel like your diagnosis that I'm just that girl with the heart arrhythmia with the broken neck and the brain injury, but to have someone actually even just come in. And I know we've heard it before, but to someone say, Hey Lynn, you know, to even hear your name, Mm. to talk about the weather, to Mm. talk about the sense game or something like that, to talk about something other than just my diagnosis. Um, it, it means the world. Wow. And and it, that doesn't take any extra time. It doesn't take, you know, any extra training. I mean, that's a, a tool that we all have sort of at our fingertips, every healthcare professional, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's to remember that there's a person lying in that bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's not just a patient, it's a person mm-hmm. with a story and a, a history and a background and, you know, life-altering you know, often life-altering kind of circumstances that have put them there. That's, you know, I want to say maybe this is the first time I'm hearing this, but to, as a patient, actually feeling like you are a patient, like losing your, don't let me put words in your mouth, but like almost like losing yourself or yeah. your that, identity, your identity. Wow. Yeah. Like that's. But then it also, it doesn't take a lot to make me feel like Lynn again, mm-hmm. to have someone just come in and say, Hey, Lynn. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it, it, it means the world. And, uh, you know, in terms of other things that, that I would tell, you know, healthcare professionals, things that they can do like today. And this is a very simple example, but it sticks out in my brain because it's so simple, yet it was so compassionate. And I remember a resident had come to see me and then was on his way out. And he said, is there anything I can do for you before I go? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was still completely stuck in the bed at that point. And my my phone had somehow been moved from sort of my bedside to, to somewhere else. And, and I didn't want to, you know, like ring my bell and ask a nurse to come and give me myself, you know, it, that just... I was never kind of that kind of that patient that, you know, if the nurse was already there, I might say, hey, can you grab? But I, I just didn't, you know, I know that everyone's really busy, right? And so, but on the way out, the resident, he said to me, is there anything I can do for you? And I was like, yeah, if you could just grab my cell phone, that would be great. And so he was able to give me my cell phone. And I still remember that to this day. Didn't take him any extra time. Mm-hmm. It's an example that, you know, that showed that he cared beyond just doing his job and sort of seeing me as a patient, it was kind of like, is there anything else I can do for you? You know, and mm-hmm. it, it it wasn't a lot, but I remember it to this day. And, uh, you know, just that, the the act of saying, what else, you know, and wow. it was so simple. I just, I, that was my lifeline. My phone was my lifeline to the outside world. And so, and, and I needed that. And, and, and so it, I remember that to this wow. day. No, it's the, it's the little things, man. Like I, the show I did before, um, with uh, Jen McComb, she was saying how the doctors popping their heads in and just even though there was not much to say when she had a kid that had uh, cancer and and basically saying, you know, just checking in, making sure you're doing okay or whatever. That little courtesy recognition would just put so much peace yeah. in her mind. And, and, you know, and it's like you said, doesn't take much time 
to a little thing that could just go s- such a long way for that experience uh, for the patient. And, and that's why I, I like hearing these stories because every clinician hearing this, they're not going to forget that. Yeah. You know, they'll be on their on their mind when next time they're having this, these interactions. I know yeah. it's, it's been on my mind, yeah. you know. And, and it's, it's not that, I mean, it's, it's just, it's easy to forget these things because I mean, I, I see things from both sides and I mean, it's tough working in healthcare. I mean, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's a, a strained system. Resources are less and less and the demands that are placed on healthcare workers are more and more, no matter which part of healthcare you're in. I mean, it's a, it's hard, and mm. and so um, I I understand from from that perspective how difficult it is, and how easy it would be to forget some of these little things, and that it's not because someone's not compassionate or that they don't care. It's just there's so much to do and so much of a burden on them. So you know, if it it's more like a I, I say that it's it's kind of like a a reminder it, mm-hmm. it, that, yeah, that there's just, there's a person behind the patient. There's a person that that's somebody's brother, sister, yeah. mom, dad, like that's, that's yeah. a person going through a tough time. Yeah. And I mean, for me, like without sounding dramatic, it was a life altering time, yeah. you know, and that was the worst time of my life. So to have someone even just acknowledge my name or say, hey, can I, you know, grab that? Can I grab something for you? It meant everything to me because, I mean, that was the worst, uh, the worst time of my life, right? Mm. I was the most vulnerable and yeah, little things go a long way. Yeah. And I I think too that, you you know, you mentioned vulnerability. That must have been, like, I'm not sure what phase in your illness, but that must have been as a someone that was independent and, 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 you know, working hard and physically active, that must've been so It's a tough pill tough. to swallow. Yeah. Like it I still can't is. imagine. It still is. And, you know, as again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking very passionately and very openly, but I mean, it's, I have my good days. I have my bad days. I mean, it's a continual work in, work in progress. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, yeah, but it is. It's a tough pill to swallow when you sort of you instantly you lose your identity um, and you lose everything that you think made you you. Yeah, that defined you. Yeah, and yeah. I think especially physicians, a lot of the time they part of their identity is their profession, and uh, you know. So what happens when when you lose that? What happens when you lose your identity as an athlete? What happens? I mean. There's times where I still I think about how much my life changed with that accident, you know, and I always say an example was I never got to go back to where I was living before because it wasn't accessible. And so like I literally left for work that morning. And when most people move from one place to another, they get to say goodbye. They get to see, Mm. you know, I left for work that day and I never went back there. Literally, when I found my new you know, accessible apartment, I paid strangers to pack up my life and then move it here. And I mean, just even that, like, just think of how difficult that would be to not sort of say goodbye to your, where you lived in your old life. And then all of a sudden just be in a new world and a new environment and trying to figure out how to live like completely differently. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, 
I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it um, a lot of the time. And yeah. I think that's completely understandable. I, you know, I, I hear you, what you're, what you're expressing. And I, you know, personally, I can't imagine. I literally can't imagine the vulnerability, the, the resilience that would it would take that it would take the physical demands like i it's you're 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 obviously a special human being to be oh, able to well, thank you that. i am um, and uh an inspiration for real i i think most people would would do it though i mean you don't realize what you're capable of until you have to but lynn i fair enough or whatever like you definitely you don't know what you're most people, are, I think, are capable of doing more than they think. But I think you and I have both seen both sides where people have gone through similar episodes where that will isn't there, that drive isn't there. They they get chronically almost institutionalized because of that lack of drive. So, and they're not out there voicing the like advocating for patience yeah. and so on. So. Like it's I've I've been lucky though as as well. Um I've had some I mean some of the the people on my healthcare team um I mean I I wouldn't be where I am today were it not for the phenomenal people and and not just physicians but but nurses and physios everybody social workers like everybody I mean there's there's some phenomenal people that I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them. And some like, um, I mean, so, I mean, I appreciate that you're crediting me, but I have to credit some of the people that are part of my care as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of my wonderful, like close friends. And I mean, it's, it's hard to, I I've read a lot about the psychology of sort of seeing people become ill. And I even see it from somebody else's perspective that, you see the vulnerability of human life, right? Mm-hmm. And and so that could be hard for a friend who's of my age group as well to sort of see someone all of a sudden almost like lose everything yeah. and, and have to kind of start over or learn how to recalibrate their, their whole life. Um, and, you know, I can't even imagine how I would feel if I saw that happen to like, a family member or like a close mm-hmm. friend or something like that. It would be, it would be tough because you realize the fragility of human life. life. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think maybe we see that in as physicians, but um, outside of that, often people don't see that day to day. Right. And also like without experiencing it, even as physicians, without experiencing it yourself, like I think you, it doesn't always register how fragile yeah. life is. You know, exactly. So I, I think um, what you're saying really, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. We're talking about solutions and how our current healthcare system could be quite siloed and, and navigating through healthcare could be difficult. Have you thought of any way of overcoming this? Like, did, were there some kind of ideas that came came to mind as you're, you're seeing how shitty some of these circumstances could be? Oh. Well, I mean, one of the things that I kind of see is that I feel like our healthcare system is beyond the point of 
patchwork or band-aid like and that's what we're kind of trying to do right now is we're putting band-aids on things but i think there's almost a bit of a system redesign that needs to happen Mm -hmm. i don't know how that would happen i mean and that's a whole like political government you know like there's so many levels for that but there there almost needs to be some massive redesign but i mean i really i i truly wholeheartedly believe and i've seen that patients can be a huge part of the solution. And mm-hmm. I know I've said it before, but uh, listen to them. And they they have a lot and a lot of expertise to, to bring. And But uh, the other thing I would say is I'm a huge believer that a unified electronic medical record, you know, for example, like one unified one for Ontario or something like that. Isn't it kind of crazy that this doesn't exist in it 2019? Is. Isn't it crazy that we still, like, as doctors, we get paged, we send faxes for, <laughs> right? Like, who who faxes anymore? Yeah. Like, outside of, of healthcare, right? And, yeah, like, and, it's crazy. But, it, you know, and, and an example is, I mean, patients are, like I said, it's hard to navigate the system anyway. But when there's pockets of information missing... I I know, I mean, I think this is where I've often said that I don't know that I'd be able to be where I am today were it not for my medical degree, because mm-hmm. I have so many active health issues that it really is hard to manage. And I've often said that I feel like my MD is just helping me to be able to survive myself. But uh, in terms of the gaps in the system, I can fill that in because I understand what's happening. I have an understanding if, you know, if my electrolytes haven't been done in a certain amount of time and and I know to kind of speak up and to to sort of ask. But for example, if there's a, a consult from somebody that sort of lays out recommendations and that consult doesn't get to your family doctor, things might fall through the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. And um, whereas if you have one unified system, A, I think we'd save money because for for all the times that, you know, you get blood tests done in a hospital, but then you're out in the community and they redo the same thing because- CT scan, MRI, all that that shit's getting redone. We would be saving a lot of money because records from the hospital don't get out to the community. Mm -hmm. And so you almost have like two separate kind of records, but even within hospitals, I recently uh, had to have a consult outside of Ottawa and so getting oh, yeah. that the consult from a different city to come here it took weeks to wow. and and sort of i couldn't track it down myself the the hospital had a patient portal but i couldn't access it because to get access to the account you have to actually physically go to that hospital, but it was from out of town and it was actually a a video, a teleconference. So Mm -hmm. I was never actually out of town. So I couldn't get access to, you know, the online, you know, patient portal. But then as a patient, I couldn't request the consult, even though it was supposed to be sent to all my doctors here. And I was able to take notes and absorb the information, but your healthcare providers need you know, the they, console, they, right? They, they, yeah. they, they need it. And yeah. it, it took weeks and being admitted in hospital and sort of having an inpatient physician who was overseeing my care request it from this other facility. Then the consult finally came and it was able to be disseminated to all the different sort of people that needed it here. But I mean, just that one consult that had so much information was so difficult to get. Yeah. 
And but I mean, just how easy would it have been if we have one unified electronic record for the whole province, right? It, it's all there. It's it's crazy. Like in I'm, I'm originally from Alberta. They're doing epic in the whole province, and I'm like, kudos, yeah. yo. Like this is the way the way of the future. This is how you will save money, improve quality of care, improve the patient experience. Yeah, you see the silos, you see all these things, but if you just have one set of data, it, it seems so simple. Yeah. Yeah, we can't get there. I mean, if I if I if I ruled the world, you know what I'm saying? Like we'd be there. What I would say is like stop giving people, stop asking questions. Just do it. Yeah. You are getting this EMR, whether it's Meditech or Epic, whatever. You, you make this decision, Ontario government, and that's it. Yeah. Full stop. Yep. We deal. We'll deal. Yep. You you know I. You have to tear off the bandaid. Yeah. No, and it's been done, and it's. Like me, in it's Toronto, done in other countries. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, it, you know, it's it's just it's too bad. I mean, other countries, you don't even have like a health card, right? Like everything is all electronic. Like yeah. it, it, yeah. It all, yeah. You, you think 2020 coming up in here? The only the other thing that came to mind as we were talking about this is I know some centers have like patient navigators, like basically hired people that helps you navigate this crazy system where they help make sure that you're on time for your MRI and let you know, you know, make sure that consult got to the family doctor and all the, all these things. And I just thought when I heard this, you know, I just thought how brilliant it would be. Cause honestly, with a medical background, it's still tough to navigate it's- as you've well articulated here, you know, but yeah, cause you know, you always want to try and think of solutions to, yeah. to some of these. Uh, and and again, you know, problems. someone might say, well, then that's going to cost money because you have to hire someone to help. But what about the cost of somebody that doesn't show up for their MRI because they got, they were told to go to one place or they forgot about or something like that, or right? Or just visiting, it, a mer- going to emerge because yeah. they couldn't find a prescription for XYZ. Exactly. Or, so, you know what I mean? Like there would be so, yeah. It, again, I, I think that we have to just, I don't know, there's something about healthcare where we're, we're really resilient to try new things, right? We we get so stuck in. Don't even get me started on this. It, it is insane how resistant we are to change. Yeah. It is unbelievable. Yeah. I, from all aspects, from like, from your little division, department, university, yeah. you know, I, I'm a big believer of do what you can, do, do it. And then ask forgiveness later because in medicine nothing changes, yeah. man. Not except like, guidelines. Yeah, guidelines that are like <laughs> medications, all yeah. that stuff. I mean, it, yeah. it's changing Which every is, day. You know, and then you look at the evidence behind it. I don't yeah. want to get too yeah, uh, exactly. That's a whole other but. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lynn, we're getting to the end of the interview, and I'm wondering if you could give any advice to patients that are whether it's going through something something similar to what you've gone through or any difficult time knowing what you know now would there be anything that you would want them to know I would want them to know that's really good because I often it's a good question because I often get asked because of my training and my background what would you tell physicians or Mm -hmm. other healthcare workers but Mm -hmm. um you know like I've touched on I, I think I've had an experience as a patient that most people won't ever have in their lifetime um in you know in terms of the intensity and literally the fact that it's been 
kind of my full time sort of not job, but I've been living it full time since the accident happened. And, uh, and so, I mean, one of the things that I would say is that don't beat yourself up. It is a difficult system to navigate. It is a difficult time. But I mean, we've probably heard it before, but you're your best advocate. Mm. You know yourself best. And we talk about sort of patients being experts of the system, but also who's the expert of yourself, but yourself, right? Mm. You know yourself best and be your advocate, be your own advocate, empower yourself with as much information as as you can. Ask questions. If something doesn't feel right, um, I mean, medicine, healthcare, it's mistakes happen. It's it's human, right? It, mm-hmm. It's subject to human error. So don't be afraid to, to, to ask questions, to want to know what your options are, to want to know if you're given a medication and you're not told what it's for. Ask if, if you, you know, you don't necessarily just have to take something. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, if, if you're not sort of, don't be afraid to empower yourself, I guess, with mm-hmm. as much knowledge as you can. Take whatever help you can get and because it, it's hard being a patient. And, uh, you know, whether that's help from family, friends, whether that's help from the system itself, you know, I I wouldn't be able to do this podcast if I wasn't sort of accepting the help that people are offering to me, whether that's from healthcare providers or from, you know, friends or anything like that. And I'm, I was a pretty stubborn person, so it's hard for me to accept help, but uh, you have to. Mm -hmm. And, and no matter how hard you try, you just, you can't, you can't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders Mm. and it's okay to be vulnerable. It's, you know, it took me a long time to sort of be okay with not being okay Mm -hmm. on certain days. It's like, you know what, what has happened is not fair. Mm -hmm. It, it's tough. It's difficult. And life is hard today. And, and that's okay that I'm feeling like that. I'm okay if I have a day like that because it is hard and it is difficult. You can't stay stuck in it. Um, but if I want to have a day where it, it can actually be kind of therapeutic sometimes to sort of, yeah, it, it sort of, no matter what, if you're dealing with any sort of difficult situation and circumstance, if, you know, if, you know, I, I think of an example, if you lose a loved one, if you don't have days that are terrible, you're not processing it at all, right? right? Um, And so it's hard being a patient and, you know, easier said than done, but be easy on yourself. Mm. And yeah. Yeah. No no one has ever asked me that question because I always get asked. So that's, I'm going to think more about that because that's, I've always been asked, what would you tell healthcare providers? But I've never had to, you know, I've never thought about what I would say to, you know, but I think what is comes to the tip of my sort of tongue is that I would say one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Mm. And that's okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. I, everything you're, you're saying just makes so much sense. Even I can't count how many times, you know, hearing a patient express something along the lines of, I can't tell you what it is, but just what you're saying, like this treatment doesn't feel right or it, something's not, something's not on. And 94% of the time when they're, they're expressing themselves like that, there's, they're right, yeah. you know? And um, so being that advocate for themselves and to be, not being shy to express when things don't seem right or 
there needs to be change is is paramount. Yeah. And uh, so I'm glad I'm glad I asked, but I'm glad to to hear the answer to that. You know, because um, you know that's what we're about trying to make things better. So Lynn, I gotta once again I'm gonna say this. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being the warrior that you are and advocating for patients. Thank you for allowing me into your home and, and having these this amazing discussion, which I hope will will really create some awareness and, and improve care that we pr- we're providing our patients because that's what it's all about. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it's, it, this was fun. I'm getting teary eyed as you're as you're saying that of everything that I've spoken about now is sort of the when you're saying thank you. That's what I'm getting uh, emotional. But it's my pleasure and um you know, I, as hard as everything the last six years has been, there's, I've learned a lot and, and I've got a lot to share. And Mm -hmm. I think I can still make an impact and an imprint. Um, And so I appreciate you giving me this platform, appreciate, yeah, what you do for patients. Um, I mean, I I always uh, appreciated every healthcare worker, but I think having been one myself, I understood the sort of demands, but also being a patient, I observed how hard it is to work in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for every healthcare worker out there, every physician. Um, yeah, everybody. Well, so thank you. Thank you. And I, I can promise you this, you're going to leave a, a fat imprint on this, on this bad boy. So uh, don't, uh, don't worry about that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode 12 with Dr. Lynn Ashton. Remember, that patient voice matters, you know, at all levels. And whatever we could do to make sure that that voice is heard is paramount, guys. If you want to leave any comments, leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. We really appreciate the love. And if you're up for it, leave a five-star rating or comments on iTunes. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Peace.